morning, church. You guys can go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 1. That's where our scripture reading is going to be today. We're going back to the genealogy of Jesus, uh, where we've been for the last few weeks. And we've been looking at the women in particular that are included in the line and lineage it's accounted for here in Matthew chapter 1. So just to kind of recap, we've already looked at Tamar, Rahab. The next one mentioned is Ruth. And because we did a whole sermon series on the book of Ruth, I'm skipping over her. I hope she'll forgive me. Uh, and now we're coming to the story of David and Bathsheba. And so I want to read this together and then us pray together. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then down in verse 6, it says, And Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, and Now, it doesn't say her name, but we know the wife of Uriah was Bathsheba. So let's pray together that God would speak to us through this, his word. Father, I pray that those in this room that have suffered greatly, that you would be their comfort, just as we lit the candle earlier and prayed that you would comfort those with the comfort that they've been given and that they would be able to offer it to others. I pray that you would reign as the Prince of Peace today. You'd reign supreme over all the things that feel undone in our lives, the things that feel out of order, and specifically all the hearts who wonder where you were in moments of their story that they wish they could change. I pray that, Lord, you would show them that you're not only there, but you're here in this moment. You offer us peace through the cross of Jesus. I pray that as we gather, that your gospel would be a balm to us that would soothe all the places in our souls that ache, that long for the truth to come forward. Not only that you would come and comfort those things from the past, but you would bring justice in the future. For all of us that are waiting on justice, I pray that you would reassure us today and that we would rejoice not only in your coming and that you are coming again. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now this... Uh, <laughs> portion of the genealogy of Jesus most likely provokes a familiar story for people um, who followed Jesus or know the stories of the Bible. For us, I don't know about you, but whenever we're decorating the tree in our home, we have a Christmas tree. Yes, we do. And, and every year we pull out all the ornaments that we've collected over the years, and we remember different places that we've brought these things from, maybe places that we visit or things that our kids have done or the ornaments that our kids made all those years through Sunday school. We have a whole tree dedicated to the, to the arts and crafts um, that our kids have created. And each one brings forth a memory of our family, and we... We'll tell each other those stories or remember when this kid made this or remember when you did this. And the same thing is true for the genealogy of Jesus. There's stories that it prompts to our mind. And in this portion of the genealogy, it prompts the story of David. And everybody who thinks of David immediately remembers certain portions of his life things that he probably would have wanted to forget about his life, all of us in this room most likely remember. 
Um, he had been chosen from an early age to be the successor, the replacement for Saul, who was the very first king of Israel. And when he sinned, he avoided the consequences. He avoided taking responsibility. And because of that, he was removed. David is handpicked by God, anointed by Samuel. Yes, he slayed Goliath by this point. He's bold, he's wise, he's courageous, and he's a musician and a singer. Everyone is going to like this king. And perhaps he's the king that's been promised. He's the one that they've been waiting for until this moment in this life, in his life. And as all of you know, he's not without flaws. He's the living proof that if you put your confidence in anyone other than God himself, you are sure to be disappointed. And if you grew up like I did in the late 1900s and politics in the 90s, if you know the name Bill Clinton, you also know the name Monica Lewinsky. And everyone who knows David's name also knows the name of Bathsheba. A dark and sad story. And, and, if, and people have retold this story through the ages. Leonard Cohen in his song, Hallelujah, he doesn't get the story right, but I didn't hear it until Jeff Buckley in the late 1900s. Love is not a victory march. He gets that part right. It's a cold and it's a broken hallelujah. Love is certainly not a victory march for King David. It's a story of redemption and mercy and forgiveness. And everyone who knows the story of the scriptures, you know that God likes to include those kinds of stories about the people's lives. For some people, we might feel like we know a little too much about King David. The actual story, the real story of David and the real story of Jesus is one where these kinds of things are included as evidence of God's victory in the long run, even when there's defeat in the short run. It's broken, it's messy, and God includes stories both of violators like David and victims of sin, and somehow he weaves those kinds of stories together to reveal the glories of his grace. And so today, big picture, God remembers both the violator and the victim of sin, and he brings them together in his story of redemption. And so we're just going, what's the story? We're going to recap it. Not because most of you don't know this story, okay? At Christmas, most of the stories and the songs that we sing, everyone, are fam- we're familiar with them. So we, re- we go back to these stories, not because you need to learn them, but because we don't ever need to forget these stories, So here's the story of David and Bathsheba. We're going to first look at his sin with Bathsheba. And if you would just like to follow along, I'm going to be looking back at 2 Samuel chapter 11. That's where the majority of this story unfolds, but it's also going to be on the screen. Um, And I'm going to pull in scriptures from 1 and 2 Kings and Chronicles about David's life so that we can see what is this that has been included in this promised king that's unfolding, coming Uh, by the name of Jesus. This is his story, and this is his lineage. In chapter 11 of 2 Samuel, you, you find out first it's a season, an actual time. It begins in spring. So you can imagine the trees are budding, the blossoms are blossoming, the birds are singing, and the days are growing longer, a little bit longer. And it's the time, not only in spring, but it's the time when kings go out to battle. David sends uh, Joab and his servants and all of Israel, and they go out to battle 
But David remains in Jerusalem. Now I've been told and read this week that we shouldn't make much about David staying uh, in his location. But it certainly seems like the author's saying, in a time where everybody else is going to war, David is staying at home. And at this time, uh, that's where we pick up the story in verse 2. It's going to be on the screen. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch, was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. So David had either been sleeping in the afternoon, was not able to go to sleep in the afternoon. Either way, he can't sleep. He's restless. He gets up. He goes out to walk on the roof. And then he sees. His eyes work for him. And what he sees is a beautiful woman. He sees her bathing on the roof. And his eyes work and tell him, this is a beautiful woman. At this moment, David has not yet sinned. He just sees. And then in verse 3, he sends and inquires. David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Now at this point, David knew a few things about the woman that he had been seeing, and he chooses to do something with that information. Now, I want to let you know a couple things about the two other men that are mentioned here. Eliam, her dad is most likely one of the 30 mighty men. So he's a warrior in David's kind of uh, Navy SEAL team. Her husband is also a warrior in David's Navy SEAL team. Both of them mighty warriors. So her husband, her dad, she's surrounded by fighting men. She's surrounded by men of influence, of consequence, and she's a very beautiful woman. She's striking, and she's married to Uriah, who's not only part of the 30, he's a Hittite, which meant that he was originally not part of God's people. So somehow he's been brought into the fold. He's an outsider that's been brought in, and she's married to a foreigner. So what is he going to do with this information that he's, this is the daughter of someone who works for you. This is the wife of someone who fights for you. What do you do with that information? Look at verse four. David sent messengers and took her and she came to him and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. And then she returned to her house and the woman conceived and she sent and told David, I'm pregnant. What he did with the information was that he sent and took her. He lay with her and she conceived. The vulnerability of this moment for Bathsheba, I mean, what is she supposed to do? Here's a man with power and influence. And for the rest of her life, she's going to be affected by the results of someone else's sin. All throughout the scriptures, it does not indict Bathsheba. There's nothing that says that she sinned. Everywhere it talks about this story, David is the one whose fault it is. So she's brought in to a moment that completely changes the rest of his life. And if this all wasn't bad enough, now just a quick recap. He's already broken three of the Ten Commandments, okay? The 10th commandment, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, okay? So he's looking at her and says, I would like this for myself, Eighth commandment, you shall not steal. He's taken something that doesn't belong to him. That's stealing. Third, uh, seventh commandment, he's broken. You shall not commit adultery. Committing adultery is sex outside of the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman. Anytime that happens. In fact, Jesus took it even further and said, if you even look at a woman lustfully, then you've committed adultery. So all three of these commandments, he's already broken, but wait, there's more. The failure that comes next is not just his sin with Bathsheba, but his failed covering of the sin. 
He has three plans. Plan A doesn't work. Plan B doesn't work. Plan C works, but it doesn't work, okay? Because you can't cover sin, which David comes to realize throughout this plan. The plan unfolds. Plan number one, he says, go get Uriah. I'll check on everyone, and maybe he'll sleep with Bathsheba, and it'll all be covered. This happens in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 8. It says, then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. Now, he wasn't just checking on Joab and his warriors. He's like, I need to cover over this thing. Go wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. In other words, he's saying, I I want you to go visit your house, visit your wife, and I'm going to give you a special present. Um, (laughs) You ever have somebody that starts giving you uh, things and you're like, why are you saying all these nice things about me all of a sudden? Like you immediately start to feel skeptical about this. Anytime your kids come up to you and say, Dad, you're just the best dad. You're like, what have you done? What, what have you done? In this moment, suddenly Uriah, one of the 30 men, becomes this really important messenger of the king. And he sends him out with some kind of gift. And he's like, go, go visit your wife. Well, he doesn't. He doesn't go visit his wife. Plan A does not work, okay? The birth certificate lie is not going to work. Plan B, the David, the king after God's own heart, says, okay, we're moving on. What's his next plan? He's like, I need to get him drunk. So 2 Samuel eleven thirteen, 13, going to be on the screen. David invited him in. He ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of the Lord, but he did not go down to his house. I can just imagine David thinking, if he had all of these convictions about not going home when all the other soldiers are going to to war, just wait until I get him drunk. Doesn't work. Plan B fails, and then on to plan C. As if the previous treachery was not enough. Verse 15, in the letter he gives to Uriah, he sends it to Joab and he says this, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. He makes arrangements for his murder. All of these failed attempts to cover sin, not only do not deal with it, He makes no penance by giving him some kind of gift in exchange for taking his wife. None of these things work. And in this moment, Joab becomes an accomplice to the cover-up plan. And then basically he's murdered. But that's not all. There's all this collateral damage, okay? It's not just Uriah and the child. There's collateral damage to this sin. And there always is. Sin always overpromises, underdelivers, and it underestimates the cost every single time. So what happens? He sends back this letter. Joab gets the letter. They go into battle. But in order to ensure that this mighty warrior is going to be killed, they have to get really close to the city walls. So close that some woman throws a big brick off and, and kills someone. Okay? They're that close. And anybody who's like going to tell this story, they're going to know this is not right. And so Joab sends word back. and He's like, listen, when you tell David what's happened, if he asks about the lady with the millstone throwing it off and killing someone, if he asks about why we had to get so close to the archers, I just want you to let him know in that moment. Say, oh, and also your servant Uriah has died. So at this point... David's made Bathsheba a widow. 
Uriah is dead. She's grieving in her house. And maybe in this moment, David thinks that he's escaped the consequences. Look at verse 26. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her into his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. At this point, he's violated two more of the Ten Commandments with this collateral damage. He's attempting to lie. It doesn't work. When the lying doesn't work, he murders him. He's broken five out of the ten. He's at 50% of the Ten Commandments. All three of his plans fail. And similar to Adam and Eve in the garden, he's hiding, blaming other people, trying to cover it up. It's disappointing. It's really disillusioning to see this about the most notorious king of God's people other than Jesus. That that kind of king would be this kind of vulnerable is disillusioning. That the most important person in this nation has failed. Not only the nation, but Bathsheba. Now she's a widow because of his lust. And the most important reality that happens, and we find out through all of this, is not how it's going to play out politically, okay? Because he could handle that potentially. It's not how his power has been wielded, because maybe he could cover it by arranging all these things. It's not what his family will think of the sin. The most important thing, not even what the church thinks, or it's what God thinks about his sin. Here's what we find out at the end of that chapter. The thing that David had done had displeased the Lord. It's not just that all of these things had unfolded and the consequences were far greater and the collateral damage was surrounding him. Your sin, listen, your sin may be offensive to a long list of people, but always the primary offense is with God. When someone or something displeases the Lord, know that it will not be quickly put aside. It's not going to be forgotten. God is not the God who brushes things under the rug, hoping that everyone will forget about it with you. He's not just irritated by sin. He hates sin from the least to the greatest. He hates the sin of pride. He hates the sin of greed, of coveting, of lust, of adultery. He hates all of it. It's not just somewhat offensive to him. So what's he going to do? Is he going to leave David alone in this moment? No. You know the story. Nathan the prophet comes to David with a story. And David just assumes that this story is true. He tells him this story about these two men. He says, hey, listen, David, there's these two men. There's one's rich, one's poor. The rich man, he has flocks and herds. He's got all these people. But there's this poor man. I want you to picture him right now. He's got a little, little lamb, and he loves this lamb. He brought it up. He fed it so much. that Sometimes he brings it into his table. He's feeding it table scraps. from. He's, it sits right there with him. He treats it like a daughter. He holds it in his lap. So you're, you're just imagining this guy with a lamb that, that feels like a puppy to him. Him. He just loves this thing so much. Anyway, there's this traveler who comes in, in town. He's trying to visit the rich man. The rich man is not willing to kill one of his many flock to feed the man. And instead, he goes and steals that little, that little sweet lamb from the poor man. And he takes it, roasts it, and feeds his guest. Crazy, right? And David is so indignant 
because of this. God confronts sin through Nathan, but what's his immediate response? Look at verse 4. David's anger is greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. He's indignant. You guys know that a lot of times what we're indignant about reveals something about our own hearts. When you see people that are just, they can't believe how awful the world is. It's not always the case, but sometimes it reveals the thing that maybe we're trying to hide. The thing in our own conscience that we're trying to to quiet. Before I move on to his response, I just want to ask you, are you more aware of other people's sin or of your own sin? Because in this moment, when he hears this story about this selfish, greedy, rich man, he looked at it and he said, this man deserves to die. Not only that, he should pay him back fourfold. This should cost him greatly. He's indignant whenever he hears about other people's sin. And in this moment, when he's just fuming about how this injustice could happen inside his kingdom, David looks at him. It's going to be on the screen. David said to Nathan, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You've struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. In this moment when he's being confronted, suddenly David sees. I can imagine he goes from being indignant to seeing all of the emotional damage that he's called, the shame, the disgrace that he's brought on the nation of Israel, the collateral damage of Bathsheba's widowed now, Uriah is killed, everyone else that was sitting at the edge of this city wall, the lady who's thrown a millstone on someone else's head, all of these moments begin to flood into his mind. And not only that, the spiritual damage that's happened, evil against you and your own house, now the sword is never going to depart from your family. That's one of the consequences. There's a shame that it's going to come. He says, listen, even though you did this thing secretly, it's going to happen to you in public. Your family is going to do the same thing that you've done in secret in public. And then he says, it's also going to bring about death for you. Look at verse 14. Nevertheless, because of this deed, you've utterly scorned the Lord. He didn't just scorn Bathsheba and Uriah. You scorned his words. You scorned the Lord. And because of that, the child that's going to be born is going to die. The consequences of sin always go beyond what you anticipate. Always. And there's a lot of ways that David could respond in this moment of being confronted with his sin. I just want to pause for a moment and ask you, has anybody ever confronted you like that? Anybody ever said, hey, it's you? 
It's you. The problem isn't all around you. The problem isn't other people's sin. I know from experience that maybe if someone confronts like this, there would be a response of anger. Who does Nathan think he is in this moment? Does he not know who the king is? Anybody ever confronted you and you thought, who do they think they are telling me this? Maybe your own spouse. And you think, who do they think they are? Maybe the the opportunity to be defensive in this moment to say, it's not that bad. I mean, have you heard about these other kings? Do you know what other kings are doing? Or to continue along the path of hiding. This is none of your business, Nathan. You really need to stay out of it. Who I sleep with, who I kill. So how does David reply to it? It does sound ridiculous, doesn't it? It's insane. But he doesn't reply like that. Thank God. He says to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. I've sinned. In this moment, he had also sinned against all those other people. Bathsheba. Uriah, Joab as an accomplice, all the army, all the people that he was trying to deceive. He sinned against all of them, but ultimately he sinned against the Lord. And here's what I want you to know. Every way that we sin against one another, did you know that it's ultimately against the Lord? Now he's lusted after her, violated her, made her a widow. She's, he's taken away everything about the life that she was living in this moment. And, and ultimately, he sinned against the Lord in all of that. Why? Why is that true? Because people, uh, first and foremost, are created in God's image. They're valuable to him. And any sin against your siblings, against other human beings, and any, any person who's ever sinned against you has ultimately sinned against God. Any sin that you've committed against others, you've ultimately sinned against God. To wrong anyone is an offense of the one who created them in his image. And in this moment where he could no longer hide or no longer uh, run from his sin or ignore it, he confesses. Psalm 51. Now the reason that, that most of us would rejoice in this story being included in the lineage of Jesus is because of the comfort that we take in Psalm 51. When David gets found out, he confesses his sin and he says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. In other words, everything that I've tried to ignore, I've tried to forget, I've tried to hide, it's right in front of me. I can no longer avoid it. And he goes on in verse 4, Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. What happens in moments like this? They're in the midst of the mess, all the brokenness, the cold and broken, hallelujah, this moment where everything is falling apart. What happens? What can God do with a moment like this? Well, we find out in the long run that God takes moments like this and works a powerful redemption for his glory. We begin to see it unfold with Solomon. 
David goes and comforts his wife in chapter 12, and she conceives and bears a son. His name is Solomon, and the Lord loved him. He just loves him. His affection is on this child in a unique way. So you know who gets included in the story again? God says to Nathan, you need to go tell them they, wrong, they, they named him the wrong thing, okay? I need you to go tell them that I call this child a different name, and his name is Jedidiah which means beloved of the Lord. We have a kid named that. It means beloved of God. And so from this place of brokenness, God is displaying his mercy already in his affection for this child. We got two kids in our church, named Jedediah, one named Solomon, one in the same, beloved of the Lord. He takes this horrible story of brokenness and sin and he begins to show us that he's going to accomplish something through this lineage. Was it going to be David? Was he going to be the seed that would redeem the world? Nope, not him. And then you begin to wonder, maybe it'll be Solomon. Maybe this will be the king. He's going to be the one that doesn't... And then he has all these wives and he's a mess too. We get two more stories of Bathsheba, and I don't want to leave them out because the, the theme of these women in the lineage of Jesus is that they're cunning, okay? They somehow accomplish God's purposes in ways that we would say that, that more resembles the serpent than the king, okay? And here's Bathsheba. There's two more scenes with Bathsheba because most people don't even know anything else about her life. I'll be honest, I'd forgotten these stories until this last week. I'm like, what other than David do you have with Bathsheba, Okay. What else is known to her? But at the end of her life, at the end of David's life, David is dying, okay? He's basically abdicated his role as king. And his other son, Adonijah, has said, I think I'd like to be king. And so he just declares, I'm going to throw a party, roast some animals, and invite all the king's men and all of the court and some, some of the priests. And I'm going to have these people come in, and I'm going to throw a big party and let them know that I plan to be the next king, okay? You know who was not invited to this party? Three people. Nathan, because he's a truth teller, you don't want him invited. He might ruin things. He might tell people things they don't want to hear. Okay, so don't invite him to the party. Here's the other two people not invited, Bathsheba and Solomon. Why are they not invited? Because David has made a promise to Bathsheba that her son is going to be the next king. See, they don't get invited to the, the false party. So Nathan comes to Bathsheba. He says, listen, we got to work quick or else we're all going to be dead. Okay? They're going to kill you. They're going to kill me. They're going to take us out. So he goes to Bathsheba. He says, I need you to go in there. And whatever's going on with David, he's still alive. You need to go tell him what's happening and what's unfolding. I'll follow up as soon as you get out of there. I'm going to go in there and tell him, and I'll confirm that what you're saying is true. So Bathsheba goes in and says, look, they're throwing a party right now. They're saying, long live King Adonijah. And then Nathan comes in right after and says, it's true. While you've been here sleeping and just resting and about to die, there's other people taking over the throne, but you made me a promise. So she goes in, and, and then a little bit later, David comes back to her, and he says, as I swore, it's going to be on the screen, as I swore to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, saying, Solomon, your son shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne in my place, even so will I do this day. Then Bathsheba bows her head, her face to the ground, paid homage, and the king said, may the Lord, she says to him, may the Lord King David live forever. 
forever. In other words, everyone for a moment there were on the edge of their seats about how this story of the lineage of David was going to unfold. Could have been some other way, but not according to Bathsheba. She stays, she's cunning, she goes in there, and then she accomplishes this uh, miraculous thing where God is going to accomplish his promises in ways that we would not write down, okay? I love it. If she would have let this other guy be king, probably no one would be reading about Bathsheba today. She would have been erased from their history. And maybe that's what David would have wanted at certain moments of his life. Just let her be forgotten. Let's forget all the the negative parts of the story. Because she's wise in the royal court and shrewd, she holds this trait in common with all the other women included in the lineage of Jesus. She continues that thread. And then in 2 Kings, Adonijah, she's still around, okay? Adonijah, if you just are curious what happens to him, he's like, okay, sorry, Solomon, sorry, sorry about that. I'm not going to try to be king as long as you promise to do Will you not kill me? Please don't kill me. He's like, if you act right, I'm not going to kill you. But he can't act right. Too much like his father. He goes in and he says, Bathsheba, if I ask Solomon for this, he's going to kill me. Will you go ask him if I can have one of my dad's wives after he's dead? (laughs) So you were thinking, like, again, super creepy, right? He wants to go back and marry his dad's wife. And and Bathsheba's like, this is not a good idea. He's like, no, just go go ask Solomon if this will be the case. So the last scene that we have of Bathsheba, she goes to Solomon. She asks him, hey, can your brother marry your dad's wife? And he's like, I'm going to kill him. And then he kills him. (laughs) Her entire story in Scripture is dominated by other people's sin from first to last. One of the things that Nathan had promised David is that the sword would never depart. It's going to be back on the screen. He says, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. David doesn't die, okay? There's a lot of redemption for him, and it's great news for all of us. But one of the things I want you to know is there are consequences to sin, and a lot of people in this room still feel the consequences of other people's sin. From first to last, Bathsheba is dealing with the sin of somebody else. At the very last moment we see her in Scripture, her son and his half-brother are going at it. Why is this? It's not because of anything she's done. It's because of the sin that happened around her. It's a tragic story. And it's redemptive. And so today I have three applications for us, okay? Three things as we put this ornament on the tree of Christmas. Why should we remember this story? Three reasons. Number one, that we would be warned. That even after David is gone, that she would be dealing with sin. Be warned by this. If you think, I'm in a great place, I'm doing fine. 1 Corinthians 10 says, Therefore, anyone who thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. If you think you're doing great, be warned by this kind of story. Be warned by David's life. Be reminded that there was this one area of his life. Now, some of us are like, man, my life is going great. 1 Kings chapter 15, it tells the story. It reminds us of David. He says this, 
David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life, except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. All of us have lives like that where there's this one corner where you're like, I hope this doesn't trip me up. Be warned. Take heed lest you fall. Now, I think it's payback for all the people I've laughed at when they fell down. I really do, okay? I just think it's hilarious. If you fall down in front of me, before I comfort you, I may laugh, okay? I, I cannot control it. But I think payback for that is that I have really weak ankles, okay? <laughs> and if you walk with me anywhere, you're bound to see me fall down. And I have to walk with an awareness that I have a weak right ankle, and I'm going to tell you, there's certain moments I laugh because there's so many people I've laughed at. I'm like, it's fine. You can laugh at me. I've fallen down. If I hit an acorn the wrong way in my yard, I'm serious. I'm all the way down on the ground. And because of that, anytime that I'm walking in moving traffic, I like start feeling aware of my ankle. You know what I'm talking about? You just start feeling it. Some of us that are getting up in age, there's a way in which you walk more cautiously. You know what I'm talking about? You've seen it. I've seen it with my own parents. The older they get, they walk a little more cautiously. For us, when we remember stories like this, we need to know that all of us have a weak ankle somewhere. And Satan has a plan. Satan has a plan. And he's willing to play the long game. So for us, be careful, be warned, watch that weak ankle, flee from sexual immorality, don't let it be your entertainment. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but sexual immoral person sins against his own body. So that's my first application. The second one is this, it's good news, be forgiven. Everyone in this room has to come to a point, you will, either now or later, where you realize you have been unfaithful. And every person who acknowledges that they've been unfaithful can be forgiven. That's the good news of the gospel. The hope of the gospel is not that you can somehow hide your shame or the disgrace, but that you can bring it out into the open and be embraced by God anyway. The memories that you wish you could forget, God will remember and he might expose, not to shame us, but in order to offer us forgiveness and cleansing. First John says it this way, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then it goes on to say, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. And guess what? He's not. His word is not in us. The invitation of the gospel is not to go on pretending that we've got it together, but to go on acknowledging that we don't. And every person in this room stands on level ground at the foot of the cross. We all are in need of his redemption. And the good news is God loves to show compassion. He loves that. Psalm 103 said, As far as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. In other words, he's offering to take every bit of the debt that we owe and nail it to the cross and we bear it no more. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. He knows that we're but dust. He's not looking at you going, I am really shocked that you have failed so much. 
There is not one failure you have ever had where God was surprised by it. He planned for that with the cross of Jesus, and that was paid for a long time ago. So even the sins that you haven't even committed yet, he paid for them in the past. He's not looking at you shocked so you can come to him openly and freely and be forgiven. And then the last application is this. The great comfort of our coming king means that those who've suffered the consequences of someone else's sin can be comforted. In the song that we'll sing, O Holy Night, I hope we sing it uh, Christmas Eve, right? Yeah, I love it. Love that song. Chains shall he break for the slave is our brother, and in his name all oppression shall cease. The promise of a king that would come through this lineage is that one day there'll be a king who possesses all, he already possesses all the power, and he'll never abuse that power ever. There's never a moment that he has, and there's never a moment that he will. And when other people have abused their power and oppressed those around us, maybe even yourself, or if you've suffered in some way, one day that suffering will be over. And when we sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, bid envy, strife, and quarrels cease, bid it cease, we take comfort in that at Christmas because we believe that he's coming again in all the ways that justice has been delayed. It has not ultimately been denied. Every person, confused, broken, Feeling the cold and broken hallelujah will be warmed and beautiful at his coming. For those that have experienced sexual oppression, know that there's a Savior who not only comes to heal and to restore, but to redeem all that's happened. He uses sin in a sinless way, and that's what happens with Solomon. He takes the brokenness of her story raises up a new king, and he comes to bring comfort. I'm closing with this, I promise. Isaiah 61 says this, and it's describing the coming of the Lord. So you may hear it talked about at Christmas. He comes to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. How could vengeance be comforting? For everyone who's experienced depression, it is. To comfort all who mourn. To grant to those who mourn in Zion. To give them beautiful headdress instead of ashes. The oil of gladness instead of mourning. The garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. That they may be called oaks of righteousness the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. I know that in this room, the World Health Organization says that like one in three women have experienced sexual assault in some case, of some kind. For all the ashes that you feel on your head, he's promised an oil of gladness to plant you as oaks of righteousness. Why? So that he may be glorified that he may be king. Let's pray that it would be so. Lord, we look to you and long for you to make all things new.
for all those here who, who feel the brokenness of sin both in them and around them. I pray that they would be comforted today. Pray that those that are acting in some foolish way, that they would be warned. And for all of us who gather in this place who need forgiveness, that's everyone. Lord, we come to you knowing that if we confess, you would not withhold your forgiveness from anyone who repents and believes. So we come with great comfort and great joy thinking about the days ahead when those who have ashes on their face will be oaks of righteousness. I pray this for the sake of your glory, Lord. Amen.